and welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the intersection where faith and reason meet up on a regular basis as we do each week here in Father Spitzer's <laughs> Universe. And I'm Doug Keck, the gatekeeper here, uh, letting everybody in to ask their questions to the one and only Father Spitzer at spitzersuniverse at EWTN.com. Check out all of Father's wonderful websites, Magis Center, Purposeful Universe, spitzercenter.org. Uh, all different, all unique, all interesting. Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EWTN YouTube channel, EWTN On Demand page. We're always pleased to have people on that page. Uh, while you're out there checking out our show, check out Faith and Life. EWTN's Campbell Miller shares the inspiring stories of everyday Catholics living out their lives in God's love and grace. Also, that's in Ireland. And Campbell Miller, just so you know, he's produced some of the best movies we've had out of Ireland, like Faith of Our Fathers. He did the one on Knock. Uh, so very, very wonderful filmmaker and, and, a, and a fun interviewer too, so check that out. Our topic, as always, we continue on with Father's book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, available naturally through our religious catalog, especially right before Christmas. Maybe you can get it just in time. And of course, Mother's book, Mother Angelica's Lessons on Genesis, lessons only Mother Angelica can give available through our catalog as well. And speaking of answers that only someone can give, it's the one and only Father Spitzer. It's always <laughs> great to be with you, Father. How are you? I'm doing great, thank you, Doug. How about yourself? Good, good. Had a good week, getting ready. Christmas yeah. is uh, upon us. Uh, it kind of, we've got the fourth yeah. week of Advent crashing in on uh, Sunday right before Christmas there, so it's a real short fourth week I of know. Advent. So Christmas is, <laughs> yeah. is, is upon us. As short as way. it can get. <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah. That, that, that fourth candle doesn't have to burn very long, so we can uh, start things off with a prayer. be great. Thanks. Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, uh, our whole audience this day, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen and Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen, very good. And so uh, before we get to some questions and our topic, we've got a couple of news stories uh, popping up there. I just wanted to get your reaction to, about a week or so ago, a statement came out, I guess, uh, written uh, out of the CDF, uh, the Catastrophe for the Doctrine mm -hmm. of Faith now, uh, a letter written by Cardinal mm -hmm. Victor Manuel Fernandez, who, who's in charge there now, indicating that under certain circumstances it may be permissible for a Catholic to keep a small portion of a deceased loved one's ashes in a personal place of significance if some conditions are met. So this was, uh, there was an inquiry put in from Bologna, Italy by the uh, Cardinal there about this question. Uh, mm -hmm. According to Fernandez, the ecclesiastical authority may consider and evaluate a request from a deceased person's family to preserve in an appropriate way a minimal part of the ashes of their relative in, in a place of significance for the history of the deceased person. However, this can only be the case if the family rejects every time a pantheistic, naturalistic, nihilistic uh, misunderstanding. So that was uh, something that just came out because, yeah. of course, people are uh, also been dealing 
you know, with trying to make sure that people understand that if you do have that done, uh, you can't spread the ashes, you know, and throw them into the ocean or any into the four, the four yeah, winds or exactly. anything like that. You're not supposed to do that. So. All right. Correcto. Right. So uh, um, I think that's a good provision, and uh, if people want it, and they will observe those conditions uh, that are stipulated. Right. I think it's okay. I right. think, you uh, um, yeah, right. uh, memento for sure. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The biggest thing with all these things is make sure people don't abuse it, which is always the toughest yep. thing. Or thinking because it says says you can do it, it suddenly means you can do it, do it. Uh, rather than you need permission yeah. <laughs> and in a unique situation and yeah. on a limited basis, you know. The rest of those things get yeah. lost in the sauce. Right. So oh, as yeah. in, so, <laughs> so exactly. as in, and as an educator, continuing on, and of course your your past yeah. history as a, a president of a university, sure. with a one with a, a wonderfully powerful basketball team, as you will remind us on a regular basis. Yeah. Of course. Uh, yeah. I thought this was an interesting article our, 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 our National Catholic Register had. Uh, it was a commentary having to do with educating our children, Catholic, Catholic parents, with their kids. And it's, uh, it's uh, St. Edith Stein's Five Tips for Religious Education, uh, Benedict of the Cross, depending on which one you prefer, a uh, uh -huh. religious uh -huh. name. I thought it was interesting to just run down these quick ones with her. She's talking in Raising Children. Sure. She said, First, children should be read Bible stories. That's the first one. Second, children yeah. should experience beautiful religious customs. That's something a lot of people are, you know, are yeah. interested in, especially today. Yeah. Children should be prepared for and receive the sacraments at the earliest possible time. She went on to say, number four, children should receive a foundation of clear and thorough dogmatic instruction in which they are guided to comprehend it not merely with the intellect, but also with the heart. And number five, she said, young minds and hearts will only be successfully formed from the, in the faith when the people who introduce the children to the mysteries are themselves permeated in their lives formed by these mysteries. Well, I think uh, there is a woman of uh, not only a terrific IQ, mm -hmm. uh, but also of terrific empathy uh, t terrific devotion and terrific EQ. And so I would say all of those things reflect that in what she would want for children. It's, right. you know, the, you know, by the way, uh, uh, Edith Stein, uh, she did have uh, a tremendous IQ, no mm -hmm. question about that. And I think uh, probably uh, Europe's, uh, one of Europe's greatest philosophers in the 20th century, mm -hmm. uh, bar none. And I, I think certainly uh, she was superior uh, to Martin Heidegger, but uh, you know, Martin Heidegger was more the secularist and mm -hmm. Edith Stein became a Catholic yeah. and um, uh, sort of abandoned the old secularism of uh, uh, Marburg University, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, um, well, she- I think, um, I think the Nazis uh, liked Heidegger a lot more than they liked Edith Stein, as I recall. Oh yeah, and and yeah. apparently Heidegger liked the Nazis <laughs> right, uh, right. more than uh, Edith Stein liked the Nazis. Nazis right. uh, Heidegger actually was part of the Nazi Party, right. whereas uh, Edith Stein got persecuted by them and ultimately killed at Auschwitz right. by them. She was but part the of that. that uh, you know that. that she was part of that Holocaust that never occurred, according to 25 percent of the young people. Yeah, in the yeah, that's right. Really, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's right. So. Uh, that's right. So, uh, in any case, um, 
uh, but she, she certainly uh, has that uh, capacity to recognize mm -hmm. it. You know, her conversion is so beautiful and simple and intuitive, uh, but uh, she certainly had a sense of beauty and she certainly had a sense of empathy. And these two things radiate throughout her uh, uh, really excellent work. Uh, she was a first-class mm -hmm. metaphysician, but in addition to that, uh, she um, also had a, an excellent training from Edmund Husserl, the father of phenomenology. Mm -hmm. And uh, on top of that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, she just brought that great sense of aesthetics, that wonderful essay on empathy uh, that she has. You put it all together, she's the complete person. And as a Carmelite nun, mm -hmm. uh, I can't imagine a better way for her to come to her fulfillment following my a uh, great uh, spiritual uh, advisor there, uh, mm -hmm. Teresa of Avila. I keep reading her three books again mm -hmm. and again and again and again um, because I just find it so spiritual inspiring. Keep mm -hmm. me on the road, literally. Uh, but uh, in any case, I, I think um, it makes utter sense to me that you know there be that beautiful component, that there be you know. Uh, um, you know, the Bible stories themselves, because the Bible stories are, are filled with, you know, not just the fascinating story, but there's, a, you know, the moral of the story, the religious mm -hmm. significance of the story is very, very uh, clear. And so, uh, uh, you know, a children's Bible is indispensable mm -hmm. for every uh, household, especially one that has pictures in mm -hmm. it, one that moves the imagination, uh, but also makes the point, the moral and religious point, clear. And then, of course, that last one of having, you know, the parents fully imbued uh, in the mysteries of the gospel uh, and the mysteries of uh, the liturgy, the mysteries of the church, the mysteries of doctrine, all of these things. Oh, if it, you know, imagine having a teacher like Edith Stein. Right. Um, so absolutely wonderful. Absolutely. Um, so she's right on the marker, and I, I certainly have a great uh, love of her. And of course, uh, love of her great uh, religious instructor, um, which was Teresa of Avila. Okay. Uh, you know, she, uh, Edith Stein read uh, uh, Teresa of Avila's life, you know, and, and um, she got to the final paragraphs of it, and the margin there it's, just says, This is truth. Mm -hmm. And off she went to the Carmelites. Right. She, uh, she had found Teresa so authentic, so, you know, true to not only a loving God but true to everything that human beings are, and at the same time so cognizant uh, of her own imperfection. And um, she just knew. Uh, this. And I, I feel the same way, I, mm -hmm. I really do. I, I, I can't help myself. I even like way of perfection. And it just keeps me on the straight and narrow, because you know, these are instructions to her sisters, right. but I find her stuff on detachment and humility, charity, obedience. I mean, sometimes she's a little curt in that book, mm -hmm. but the curt is what I need. <laughs> I need the old, uh, get with it, buddy. <laughs> you know, so uh, anyway, uh, I right. really do love, uh, love well, that, that woman. That dovetails yep. into this uh, article. The person wrote, the dogma of compassion as the new profession of faith. Um, and of course, I always used to quote Mother talking mm -hmm. about the concern she had that many times there was this kind of false compassion that was out there when you're dealing with people having to deal with the truth about a particular thing. And in this particular article, a person writes, the dogma of experience, I thought this was interesting, is rooted in accommodation of disordered human compassion over conversion to Jesus Christ in essence. In essence, they say, we prefer uh, to be like Adam, an Adam way of living versus an incarnate way of living. 
This endemic new way of living has provided a pathway to redefine things like marriage as no longer being between a man and a woman, the multiplicity of supposed genders, etc. This person goes on to say that St. Paul reminds us that we are called to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord and thus by our baptism we are to imitate him. Goes on to say the church instinct of faith in relation to the sense of the faithful requires us to assent to the way of the cross and not to be disordered human compat not or not to disordered human compassions that disregard the basic tenet of our human anthropology and created children of God. Hence the distinctive premise of Catholicism, which is that the Catholic faith is to address our human brokenness and the fact that we need redemption and not perverse human accommodations. Your thoughts? Well, no, I think uh, the author is right on there. I mean, uh, you know, to encourage a person, for example, in order to be compassionate, let me encourage you in your narcissism, which I know will ultimately be your emotional and spiritual and physical demise. But nevertheless, I don't want you to think that I don't care about your preferences for narcissism, and I want to support you in your narcissism. It's the same thing with, I remember I was debating this guy, Ralph Miro, once, uh, a Unitarian mm -hmm. minister, um, you know, at, uh, uh, during the physician-assisted suicide thing. And uh, at one point he basically said, well, Bob, uh, we both believe in the same thing. We really believe in love. I said, well, that's right, Ralph, but it all depends on what you mean by love. Right. It all depends on what you mean by compassion. Mm -hmm. And if compassion means that I'm going to encourage you in a perversity that I know will be your undermining and your destruction. Compassion means that I'll encourage you in a narcissism which will eventually wind up making you so depressed and anxious and suicidal, you'll never get over yourself, right? If compassion means, uh, you know, that I'm gonna support you in your abandonment of religion and morality, which I know in the end result will undermine you. If compassion means all these crazy things that you'll uh, go out there and get a sexual reassignment surgery even though I know that uh, uh, your suicide rate will increase by a factor of 20 times you know and but go right ahead I really want to be supportive of you that's that's not compassion that, that, that's not suffering with the person. That's not helping them to their ultimate dignity, their ultimate destiny, their ultimate hope, their ultimate grounding of their identity, and their ultimate ideal of what it means to be a human person in intelligence, self-consciousness, love, and freedom. No, no, no. Uh, you know, that's uh, uh, anything, you know, if, if it undermines your destiny, dignity, your absolute and ultimate dignity, if it undermines the notion of love, that has been given to us by Jesus Christ, which we know is good for us. And I can sh actually show it by the statistics in the book and moral wisdom of the Catholic Church. I can assure you of this, mm -hmm. this is not compassion. This is not truly seeking the good of the other. It is supporting another in something which is destructive to them and destructive to the people around that person. Mm -hmm. And if that is what you're meaning by compassion, boy, uh, that is uh, as perverse a notion of compassion as you can possibly get. You know, to, to be a sort of agreeable to somebody is not to be compassionate. 
Compassionate, compassion means to seek the good of that other, even if seeking the good means telling them, you don't want to go down that route. That route's going to kill you. That narcissism is going to kill you. That sexual reassignment surgery, it's going to kill you. You take one more drink, it's going to kill you. It's just going to kill you. You know, and, and you know, essentially, that's compassion. Right. And, and it takes a lot of fortitude right. and courage. And I'm there to uh, help to do you it. if you if you're willing to accept yeah. my help. I'm I'm willing to help you get That's through right. this. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Well, yeah. It, it, you know, people think that the, when this false compassion think is, oh, this is really reaching out. This is this is really much more. It's much easier to to just allow people to do whatever they want to do than it of is course. to intercede and yeah. to and to say, hey, by the way, I love you too much to let you go down this path because I see where it's going. Oh yeah, I remember this, uh, one of my very good friends once uh, actually told me that, uh, you know, he was, uh, uh, you know, out, you know, this is during the Haight-Ashbury days mm -hmm. and he was doing a lot of uh, LSD and drugs with these people mm -hmm. and one day he just got this insight, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, and he said, you know, you guys, I'm just going to take an extra special uh, trip here and just off myself and they all said, wow, great idea, good, mm -hmm. good for you. And of course they sent him off. Well, of course he vomits when he tries to put himself on this big trip and mm -hmm. he comes back and everybody said, well, what happened? You know, why are you back here? Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> I mean, there's compassion for you. You mm -hmm. know, <laughs> I support you in, in wanting to suicide. Hey, what are you doing? Didn't follow through, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's no heart in it. There's yeah. no seeking the good of the other. Well, there's no suffering with the other. It's just basically, you know, right. it's, it's uh, go ahead, good, good for you. Call the Timothy uh, Leary hotline. You whatever right? you want to do. Right, we'll get the Timothy Leary yeah, hotline exactly. out there, right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right. Beyond the astral plane, that's where that's yeah. where they are, right? Yeah. To quote the Moody Blues Timothy from an old Leary. album. Yeah. Oh, I remember <laughs> right? it. I know you do. I remember that song. Yeah. Right, right. That's right. <laughs> Take a trip around the bay. Okay, uh, let's get to some uh, questions uh, from our viewers. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, I've heard that for a Mass to be valid, the priest must consume both species of the Eucharist. Is the Mass valid without the distribution of communion of communion with others in attendance? I guess there's a, kind of two questions there, really. One oh, has okay. to do with well, validity you know, of the Mass uh, and consuming yeah. both, and then the other there one about is, in attendance. So. Yeah, yeah, you can get a, a permission, an adult, uh, um, uh, you know, if you're an alcoholic, for example, not to uh, have alcohol, you could mm -hmm. use uh, something else. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, uh, wine in quotes, if that's what you mean, yes, you should uh, uh, consume both species. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the definition of wine there has some flexibility I in see. it um, uh, to accommodate uh, addicts and so forth. The, the second part of your question is, uh, can you have a mass without other people in attendance? Absolutely, mm -hmm. and you know um, there are uh, you know days when um, uh, I you know like on a Saturday or mm -hmm. something if I'm not doing a mass in a parish I, when I'm here at Christ Cathedral mm -hmm. I'm generally doing a mass a public mass but there are days when I'm by myself at the house of prayer mm -hmm. and um, uh, essentially I do the mass by myself and it's a perfectly valid mass and it's mm -hmm. been allowed. Uh, you know, well, since the monks, uh, you know, as far as I know, has been allowed since the time of Jesus to uh, 
uh, to do that, but certainly uh, mm -hmm. in the monasteries there were many, many, uh, you know, times in which uh, monks celebrated by themselves. So, mm -hmm. yes, the answer is you can have a valid mass okay. without other people in attendance. Okay, um, next question. Dear Father Spitzer, I recently attended a Bible study led by an older priest. As he explained things, he would occasionally refer to God using the pronoun he and other times as she. I know God is neither male or female, but Jesus referred to him as Father. Shouldn't that be good enough for all of us? Sandy. Yes, Sandy, I think it is good enough for all of us. And uh, I, I would have to say that it causes a kind of a needless confusion. Mm -hmm. But you are correct. Uh, God does not have a gender. He's way beyond gender. He's, uh, you, know, uh, you know, infinite. But he does, you know, have uh, both feminine and um, I mean, masculine and feminine qualities. So, you know, the uh, if you look at that painting of Rembrandt with the father of the prodigal son, who obviously is God the Father, uh, Jesus is consummate revelation of who God is, right? Mm -hmm. The Father is. Uh, you can see he's got a very masculine hand and a very gentle feminine hand, uh, both of which are clasping onto the boy uh, who's kneeling in front of him. Uh, so there, there are those qualities there. But no, I think you should uh, refer uh, to... Um, God by the pronoun that Jesus uh, preferred right. Right. and uh, the uh, uh, appellation that Jesus gave. I think, um, you know, if you say, oh, that was just, um, uh, you know, uh, anachronistic or uh, that's just a matter of culture and now that's all been superseded, uh, my response would be prove it. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't seen any adequate proof uh, that Jesus uh, thought this was culturally relative. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think you should just keep using he. Uh, I don't think you should create needless confusions uh, of introducing a specifically feminine characteristic uh, right. in there through the pronoun. I think uh, just use Jesus's term. You're right. right on the marker there, Sandy. Right, absolutely. Our, our Lord talked to the apostles on the side sometimes in private. Uh, he could have always told them, oh, by the yeah. way, you know, guys, uh, don't do it in public, but <laughs> really doesn't matter. Yeah. Apparently he never did that. Uh, yeah. Next up, dear Father Spitzer, <laughs> many Catholics wonder why attendance at Mass is dropping. I think it's because the Mass is too long. In today's culture, we're much busier than in past years and our schedules are packed. Perhaps using shorter homilies, the Apostles' Creed instead of the Nicene, and some other time savers, we should shorten the Mass about 35 minutes. More people would likely attend. Do you agree, Jerome? Jerome, I, I don't agree, no. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's where people's priorities are. Mm -hmm. You know, if your priority really uh, is, you know, that my, my religion, my God, my eternity, and the values that come from that, and the thankfulness to the Creator, and the thankfulness uh, for the rede uh, to the Redeemer come first, you know, that that's what really is important. That is the number one priority of my life. Uh, if that's your priority, mm -hmm. honestly, whether the Mass is 35 minutes, 45 minutes, or an hour is not going to make any difference. I mean, what, what are you going to do with that extra 20 minutes? What, what do you you, you want to rush off to the baseball game, the basketball game, mm -hmm. the, the skiing slopes, the ice rink? What, what do you want to do? You know, I mean, it's just like, uh, hey, you know, how many 20-minute intervals we waste right. during the week? And, you know, I, I, you know, people say, well, if you just made it a little bit shorter, then, you know, um, young people would not abandon the mass. 
you know, that's not the problem. The shortness of the mass or the longness of the mass. I mean, if you look at what happens, for example, um, you know, at a, a focus, that's a fellowship of Catholic University students, one of their conferences, you, you put out adoration and you say, okay, you know, one hour adoration. People do the hour adoration, they come away saying, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm -hmm. I spent the full hour there. It's not about the amount of time. It is the interpretation that the time being spent on worship mm -hmm. is a valuable time, and that the time being spent on prayer is a valuable time. That, that in fact, this is something I want to dedicate to God. And I, I remember, you know, my mom, God bless my mother, but I mean, uh, one of the things that my dear mother would say is, what really does matter is you're dedicating this time to God. If the homily is good, if the homily is not so good, right? The, 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 mm -hmm. the, the, the thing is, you were dedicating this time to the sacred, dedicating it to God. That's your gift back to God mm -hmm. uh, in Thanksgiving. And then, that's your first thing is, is and Lord, I want to be with you. I want to thank you. I want to dedicate this time to you. Now, you know, that's the first order of priority. Thank you for everything you gave me. Thank you for my eternal soul. Thank you for redeeming me and rescuing me from the evil one. Thank you for giving me all the blessings that I've gotten this week. Thank you, you get the point, for my wonderful parents. And thank you for, for you know, all the, the wonderful education you've given me and so forth. So, okay, yes, thank you. Then the second priority is, okay, now, uh, what's the first part of the Mass? The first part of the Mass, of course, is that penitential rite. I mean, I, I mean, there's lots of little parts before the, the but the penitential rite is right there up in front. Take advantage of that. That's a time to reconcile yourself before God, right? I, I mean, we, we just we haven't had a perfect life. When, you know, when that Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy is going on, just really say it to God. Just make that your own penitential rite. Say it to God, like in between confessions and so forth, to, to, to really put it out there. And the second thing is, is you know, as, you know, sometimes with those gospel readings, we get so distracted, things are going on in the church, or, mm -hmm. you know, you're thinking about the sports game you got to go to, or something like this. But don't, just, you know, try, you know, keep focus. So my mom had that idea of not just dedicating the time to God, but Focus on what is there. Mm -hmm. Focus on the penitential right. Focus on the message of the gospel or the readings. Focus on any point that you can get out of the homily. And, you know, of course, we'd always quiz mom. What if there wasn't any point in the mm -hmm. homily? My mom would say, just focus on all the other things. And then, of course, she told us, you know, very clearly how to focus on adoration and focus on reverence during the words of institution at the Holy Eucharist, you know, and the idea, you know, that we were kneeling in, in, in front of that, you know, and, and, you know, we would hear the bells and, you know, that there was, you know, that devotion worship that we were taught, you know, again, just make the most mm -hmm. out of that time. It's only one hour that's gonna happen. And, and so my, my idea is honestly, I don't think more people would come if the Mass was 35 minutes. Mm -hmm. I think more people would come and more people would benefit if, number one, they dedicated that time to God and said, Lord, this is my gift to you. 
You've given me so much, and I'm not going to be some immature ingrate mm -hmm. who's going to sit there and go, uh, I'll go if you give me 20 minutes less. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's just the mentality. Right. It's just, just so, you know. So my Absolutely. mom was right on the marker, as she frequently yeah. was, and I got to tell you, I would give that advice right. to anybody Absolutely. and make the most out of everything you can Mother get Mother Angelica's uh, words were always living in the present moment. No better time than that than when you're at Mass. Okay, we're going to yep. take a break. Much more ahead with Father Spitzer and his insights and our topic on moral wisdom. All straight ahead. Stay with us. And thank you so much for staying with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe, our topic, the moral wisdom of the Catholic Church. Right now, answering some of your questions. We just had the question about a shortened mass, and we were talking during the break a little bit about the idea of be like telling your mother, Mom, an hour is a little long for me to come and visit with you and spend time. How about 30 minutes? We can just, you know, kind of speed it up a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty busy. How, how well would that go over with Mom? <laughs> Exactly. Right. I think it's uh, the analogy is very clear. Or Speaks. you know, hey, mom, I come over more often. If I, if we could set a time limit. That's right. On that's that, right. On that's that right. Of a half I, hour. I have, yeah. We we can we can switch to the blitz mass. Where you know, like chess, we can just put the yeah. timer on there, and, and as soon as I yeah. Yeah, get that on the homily, etc. I don't think the. Yeah. You know, it's amazing in other parts of the world where people have trouble getting the mass, like in parts of Africa, places where, where these yeah. people walk to mass, and then they have masses that go for an hour and a half to two hours at times. You know, yeah. we're, we're griping about whether we're yeah. going to miss the second half kickoff. Uh, next up, yeah. dear Father Spitzer, I know extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion should not give a blessing to people coming up during communion time. Are deacons allowed to give a blessing yeah. to those people who are oh, not... Yeah who are not receiving communion? The answer would be obviously yes, right? Because they have holy orders. Yes, yes, absolutely. They have holy orders and they can give blessings, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I know that sometimes that's been a thing too, where you know, the, the Eucharist, the minister, extraordinary ministers are up there and they've all been told if somebody comes up, guarantee to uh, not only look clearly in your face when they're giving you the, the, the uh, you know, communion, but also if you're not, to make sure they bless your child where it's a little like, eh, not really, but anyway. Yeah. But, you know, you got to realize yeah. this is a lot of people, this is what they've been taught, so. Uh, yeah, exactly. Next up, Dear Father Spitzer, one of the most irritating arguments atheists make is comparing belief in God with believing in gnomes, flying spaghetti monsters. I'm not familiar with that one. Or yeah. other nonsensical things. What are the best retorts to this criticism? Cliff, you're familiar with flying spaghetti monsters then? Oh, yeah, sure. That was Richard yeah. Dawkins' analogy. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. Uh, and, oh, yeah, <laughs> the flying spaghetti monster. Uh, but uh, the, the main thing to remember is this, is, you know, um, uh, when you're dealing with ridiculous kinds of things like gnomes and so forth and so mm -hmm. on, you can actually say, you know, there's absolutely no proof whatsoever uh, of a blind spaghetti monster. So if you don't want to believe in a blind spaghetti monster, you don't have to. Mm -hmm. But there is a considerable amount of rational proof for an omnipotent being, an uncaused being. And, and so you can begin there and just say, 
you know, first of all, uh, to believe in an uncaused reality um, is not a matter of uh, I, I can believe it if I want or not. Mm -hmm. An uncaused reality is, ne is necessary. If you don't have one uncaused reality in the whole of reality, then the whole of reality is composed by caused realities. And if the whole of reality is, is composed of realities that need to be caused in order to exist, then the whole of reality is, is a cause that, that needs to be caused in order to exist. And if that is the case, then the cause um, that would be necessary for the whole of reality to exist would be outside the whole of reality. In other words, it's nothing. In which case, nothing would exist and you wouldn't exist. So the first point is, is hey, first things first, an uncaused reality has to be real. Second thing is, is you can prove, and you can see this mm -hmm. in Science at the Doorstep to God, uh, a new book of mine, just go to chapter four, I've got the proof right there. You can see that an uncaused reality must be unrestricted, an unrestricted reality must be one and only one, and an unrestricted, one, unique, uh, uncaused reality must be the constant creator of everything else that is. Now that you can actually show follows like the night, the day, and if you do not accept that conclusion that an uncaused, unrestricted, unique um, a, a creator of all else that is exists, if you deny it, you're either going to get into an intrinsic contradiction or deny your own existence. Mm -hmm. Now that, that has a rational ground that is infinitely, as it were, superior to flying spaghetti monsters and gnomes. So that's the mm -hmm. first thing is just use the rational argument and just say, hey, listen, there's a ton of proof for the existence of God. Flying spaghetti monsters, not so much. Well, it's interesting. The second thing, too, of course, is just, I was just oh. to jump in on that point. Based on Dawkins' mm -hmm. latest understanding, isn't he more, uh, he would say he's not sure if there are flying spaghetti monsters anymore. Oh, yeah. Well, basically, yeah, that, that's right. He, uh, Dawkins was just having a, um, a debate with um, uh, Archbishop Williams, uh, you know, the Anglican mm -hmm. prelate. Oh, this was a couple years back. Uh, but anyway, uh, during the debate, which was being moderated by Sir Anthony Kenny, mm -hmm. a very uh, important analytical uh, analytic philosopher mm -hmm. there in, in England, uh, anyway, uh, right in the middle, you know, uh, uh, Williams had Dawkins backed up against the, the corner a little bit, and Dawkins said, well, you know, uh, I'm not so much of, a, of an atheist anymore. I'm, right. I, I lean more toward, toward agnosticism. Right. And Sir Anthony Kenny went, what? <laughs> you know, <clears throat> you're, you're the father of the new atheism, and, so, and now you're saying you're uh, leaning toward agnosticism? <clears throat> so, of course, he, he was uh, kind of outraged, but... Uh, Dawkins held to it. He, he basically said <clears throat> that his uh, curiosity now um, trumped his skepticism. Right. So uh, the and second point you were going to make before I interrupt you, go ahead, Father. Oh, no. Uh, you know, uh, when you, whenever somebody makes an, an argument where they uh, trivialize, uh, you know, the argument that the other person is making, that's called a straw man argument. Mm -hmm. In other words, you take, you know, something that has a significant rational ground, like God, you know, and that's not just true for Christian thinkers or Jewish thinkers, etc. I mean, Aristotle, Plato, lots and lots of people who had no religious background at all, lived in a pagan society with a multiplicity of gods, actually knew you could prove the existence of God mm -hmm. uh, by various means, and that God was one and unrestricted and uncaused. That's the whole deal, right? So, I mean, uh, once you, you see this, there's a million different different 
uh, ways of, of conceiving of this. And the rational basis for God has been proved, in, in my view, in about 16 different ways uh, by different people. I mean, uh, Mortimer Adler has, you know, a certain kind of proof, and, and, and uh, Jacques Maritain has, uh, Bernard Lonergan has a certain kind of proof. They're all really good, excellent proofs for the existence of God. None mm -hmm. of them go off the wall. They have substantially good grounds. The Thomistic arguments, uh, it, when you modernize them, hold up very, very well. Mm -hmm. uh, Aristotelian arguments the same way. So, uh, you know, when you ever you trivialize somebody's argument, Mm -hmm. and just basically call, you know, the God argument is the spaghetti monster argument. It's a straw man, <clears throat> and you just have to say, hey, right. I don't want any straw man arguments. Don't you trivialize, uh, you know, the, the, the rational proposition underlying God by equating it to a spaghetti monster, mm -hmm. you ignorant, you know, uh, <laughs> you know a, a person, you know, just stop that. <clears throat> you know, that's an emotive fallacy, and you, sh you, should, right. uh, you should stay away from it. Yeah. Right, absolutely. And, and it's used all the time in politics where the phony extreme oh, yeah. stream argument is put out there as if, which has nothing to do with the case and nobody said yeah. anything about in the first place. Uh, but it's all designed <laughs> yeah, to distract exactly. because or, it can't answer the, right. the true <laughs> argument. Yeah, and the very same book, Dawkins, you know, in The God Delusion, right? Do Here's Dawkins' primary argument for the existence of God. Uh, uh, premise number one, what is more complex is more improbable. Who's going to argue with that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, duh. Okay, uh, is something more complex, of course, is, you know, going to be more improbable uh, to put it together if it's got more pieces. No, no problem there. But it's the second step that he says, God is the most complex reality of all. Whoever said that? Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, if you look at the entire Aristotelian Thomistic tradition, God has to be the simplest reality mm -hmm. of all. God can't have parts because God can, can't have mm -hmm. any spatial magnitude. Remember that second premise. If you have an uncaused reality, the uncaused reality has to be unrestricted. If it is unrestricted, that means it can't have any boundaries. It can't be composed of parts. Because if it's composed of parts, then those little parts, when they, uh, you know, accumulate, they only add up to one big part. Mm -hmm. So, of course, uh, the, the idea for uh, the idea of, uh, you know, God being composed of parts has been, you know, ruled out logically, you know, since the time of Aristotle. Mm -hmm. The idea of God having a magnitude, like a spatial magnitude or a temporal magnitude, right? God has to be, the uncaused reality is what we're calling God, which is unrestricted, cannot, and, and it must be unique because you can only have one unrestricted reality, right? That has to be mm -hmm. a perfectly simple reality. It cannot be composed of any parts at all. So then, of course, let's like, take a look at how uh, Dawkins does it. He says, well, what's more complex is more improbable. Uh, you know, God is the most complex reality of all. Therefore, God must be the most improbable reality of all. Mm -hmm. Well, if the second premise were true, the conclusion would follow. But the second premise isn't true. Uh, the uncaused reality has to be the most simple reality of all. Mm -hmm. It cannot be composed of parts if it's unrestricted. Therefore, God must be the most probable reality of all. In other words, if what's more complex is more improbable, then, of course, mm. God must be completely simple, non-complex. God must be the most probable reality of all. Thank you for proving God, uh, Richard Dawkins. Mm. I really appreciate it. Once you got your metaphysics straight, but he ha didn't have his metaphysics straight, and that's why the God delusion 
is itself a delusion. A delu and that's why he's, he's, he's moving into the more middle ground there, or has moved. <laughs> I'd, I'm sure. I'd say so, yeah. <laughs> okay. Here's uh, another question, dear Father Spitzer, regarding near-death experiences. I've noticed that many of these experiences with people described do not line up with our Catholic faith. Some folks speak about reincarnation or choosing your life before being born. Some have come back thinking that no religion is necessary for salvation. Although I accept that most of these people are sincere in what they are reporting, I cannot help but wonder if they are being deceived during their NDA, NDE. Do you think that the evil spirit could be deceiving some of these people during their near-death experiences? Mike. Mike, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's not just the evil spirit. I think, you know, other spirits, I think ghosts can deceive. Right? I, I think, you know, there's a variety of things uh, that uh, can uh, deceive. Like a few weeks ago, I think we had a question on this, mm -hmm. and I was, we were just basically yes. talking about the idea of uh, people who said, you know, um, oh, you know, I had uh, a sense that I was another person from a past life. Mm -hmm. yeah, this is what you were saying was reincarnation hi yeah. hypothesis, Mike. And, and of course, I said, there's a million ways that people could have that. You could have a subconscious image of, you know, being, and, and you pointed out, Doug, that, yes, isn't it strange that people who have these, uh, you know, lucid, uh, you know, remembrances of uh, having a past life, mm. they're all very famous people. Right. I remember myself as Cleopatra, I right. remember myself as Einstein, I remember myself and so forth and so yeah, on. Right. Must have been him uh, in my previous <laughs> life and so forth. Well, it, you know, the, the idea is, of course, there's, you could get, you know, a, a subconscious sense of being another person from your subconscious. You could certainly get it from an evil spirit. You could get it from a ghost, honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a, a, you know, a sense like children are very suggestive. And of course, if spirits are around them, uh, you, they can actually appropriate, uh, you know, the sense of identity from a spirit. Doesn't mean they had a past life at mm -hmm. all. And so, of course, that, that doesn't matter. Now, if you're going to establish the, the veracity of near-death experiences, do not do it on the basis of anecdotal, that is to say, like stories, individual stories and the content of individual stories. Just look at what is reported in the really good medical scientific studies that have been done of people who are reporting veridical data mm -hmm. or blind people who are reporting verifiable data after the fact in a way that could not possibly have occurred if consciousness did not leave the body and in that detached state from the body could see and hear and think and remember and be self-conscious and have memories and move and go through walls and defy gravity, etc. In other words, look at the big studies. The Samuel Pornia 2014 study, uh, you know, called the AWARE study, is an excellent, excellent study. You can just get it. So Pornia, P-A-R-N-I-A, just go to that study and the AWARE study, just click on that. It's free of charge. You can read all the results. You can see that there's a huge group of people uh, within there that have a so-called near-death experiences where they can actually prove, they can verify that there was awareness that is, uh, you know, uh, when the, the physical body was dead. Mm -hmm. And not only awareness when the physical body was dead, but the, the, the awareness is of facts outside the hospital and, and, and things of that nature. So you take right. that Bradley Burroughs, uh, you know, a kid, that, that he's the 16-year-old blind kid, never had a visual image in his brain throughout his entire life. Uh, uh, suddenly he has, uh, you know, winds up on the, the uh, in the OR, you know, heart attack, no, no um, uh, 
um, you know, a flat EEG, fixed and dilated pupils, no gag reflex. Mm -hmm. uh, poor old Bradley is, is uh, at the point of what we call clinical death. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens? Bradley goes outside the hospital walls, and he's up top from the hospital, looking down from the top of the hospital outside, and he sees the gorgeous snow on the ground for the first time in his life, can actually see the snow, can see the trees that are in the background, a grove of trees. He sees these train tracks grooved into the snow, and of course he said, well, you know, when I was up there just uh, looking at this whole scene, I saw a tram passing by, mm -hmm. and on that tram was a big sign on the back of it with an arrow pointing to the right, and sure enough, that tram went right down those train tracks and went off to the right into the uh, grove of trees as the, the arrow indicated. Now if there's one thing a tram has, it's a time schedule. It's just like every other train. Everybody knows when those trams and trains are going down those tracks and where they are at every single second and of course it coalesces perfectly with when Bradley Burroughs is sitting there dead in the operating tower inside the hospital and he's never had a physical image in his um, you know, visual image in his brain for his whole life. His physical brain has no, nothing to hallucinate with. Couldn't possibly be explained by hallucination or anything else for that matter. I mean, his consciousness had to, which I'm going to call a soul, mm -hmm. had to detach from this physical body and it had to move um, you know, through the hospital walls and above the hospital. It had to have, uh, you know, as I said, uh, self-consciousness. It had to have awareness of what's going on around, seeing and hearing and remembrance and the whole mm -hmm. lot. He's, you know, clearly, right. uh, you know, that's the kind of study you want. And if you can come up with a valid percent, uh, the Pim Van Lommel study in the Netherlands is another good one. Just look at the New York Academy of Sciences. Um, they, you know, their um, 2022 um, uh, annals of the... Uh, of the uh, uh, New York Academy of Sciences, uh, really important where they actually testify to the okay. credible possibility uh, of your consciousness surviving bodily death. Okay. Here's another question, our last question, uh, which kind of dovetails into this. Dear Father Spitzer, I'd like your insight on pets in the afterlife as it relates to near-death experience studies as well as deathbed vision studies. You stated that animals do not have a transcendental, transcendental soul. How does that correlate with studies showing people experiencing deceased relatives along with their deceased pets in near-death experiences for both adults and children? So obviously the relatives is not the issue. The mm -hmm. issue is how come the pets are showing up? Yeah, I, I've said that animals don't have transcendental souls and indeed they don't. Mm -hmm. But can God, um, you know, make an animal um, move into the afterlife? Uh, sure. Uh, you know that's God's business. I I don't. I'm not going to present. Uh, uh, you know, present any data against that. But uh, do animals have self-reflectivity like human beings? Absolutely, they mm -hmm. do not. Do animals have a rational soul like human beings? Absolutely, they do not. Do animals have the five transcendental desires? No, they do not. So they don't have a transcendental mm -hmm. soul. Now, if they moved into the afterlife, it's because God wanted them to move into the afterlife. Right. But they don't have anything intrinsic to them that transcends the material world. That transcends physical mm. processes and structures. So that's the first thing uh, to note. Now, if, uh, St. Paul thought that some form of animals uh, were going to move into the, uh, into the uh, heavenly world. Uh, he uh, definitely did. He said the whole of creation is yearning uh, for, uh, you know, mm. its redemption, is yearning uh, to be part of, uh, 
um, you know, the, uh, the, not only the afterlife, but the perfected afterlife, uh, you know, in the world to come. Mm -hmm. So, of course, he has some sort of sense that trees and animals and even rocks are going to be there, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole of creation is going to be there. So, um, you know, I, I'm not saying that that couldn't happen. And uh, so if there is a pet, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But again, be very, 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 very careful about looking at the content uh, especially an unprovable assertion in the content of a specific story. That's called anecdotal evidence. Right. What you want is the big, huge statistical evidence, and you want to have all the procedures in place to verify mm -hmm. after the fact that people were conscious, uh, detached and independent from their physical bodies outside the hospital or whatever in a place that was remote from where the physical body was laying and that they were seeing the entire scene and could remember it uh, perfectly, etc. Right. Now, if you have that kind of data and you've got a study that can prove that this happened in 10% of the cases or 15% of the cases, that's uh, perfectly good and acceptable data. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The second thing, did, uh, did he ask about penance? Uh, in the afterlife, is that what he was saying? No, he, he talked about deceased relatives as well. That's all, which oh, obviously is a yeah. non-issue. Oh, it was no, really yeah. just on pets, but you know, again, with that, I always think, oh, you know, oh, okay. you know, as you were saying, in my mind, whatever you're going to be perfectly happy in heaven. So whatever you need to have there, if anything, to be perfectly yeah. happy, it'll be there, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. And if that so means I'm, your pets are like part I said, of that. Paul I guess they'll be there. Right? There's, right. Yeah, right. As, as far as I'm concerned, and. Like I said, St. Paul certainly believed in some right. form of glorification of, of the uh, creation beyond human beings. Right. I don't think you're going to be there complaining to God that your pets aren't there. So if they don't happen to be there, I'm not <laughs> sure if that's going to be it. No. St. Peter, I'm not coming in because uh, I don't yeah. see my dog. Anyway, yeah. that not yeah. being said that I have a dog yeah. and I love my dog eternally. So um, yeah. let's a get to dog. <laughs> okay. A noble beast. That's right. Get to my <laughs> one quick question. We only got about five minutes, so it's not much time here. But I wanted you maybe oh. to comment on this part. We, we had just talked last time about anxiety, suicide, etc. You said at the beginning of this volume, talking about the book itself, the reader may have asked, why spend two chapters, chapter one and two, on love, adultery, inappropriate sexuality, two chapters, chapters three and four, on life and death, and only one part of one chapter, chapter five, on the other four major commandments, stealing, cheating, lying, honoring father and mother. Okay, so the question is, why did yeah. you break it up that way? Yeah, uh, the reason I did was because uh, this particular culture that we have uh, right now, the emphasis is really on uh, the, do not commit adultery, right? The, the sexual mm -hmm. sins, uh, you know, and uh, sexual uh, inappropriateness, uh, you know, there's just, it's uh, gone off the, the rails practically, uh, you know, oh, far away from Christ's own teaching. So I, I really wanted to justify that and say, hey, you know, Christ's own teaching, this is for our good. This is not just to impose a set of rules on you saying you can't do this. That's not why Christ did it. He said this because and when you pull sexuality out of commitment, 
When you pull sexuality away from generativity and emotional intimacy, when you pull sexuality away from family and self-sacrificial love, when you pull sexuality out of the whole context for which it was meant to be by the Creator, as Jesus himself says, then it becomes very aggressive. Then it becomes very destructive. Then it becomes loosed, as it were. It becomes an end in itself. And when it becomes an end in itself, it actually undermines love. It actually undermines relationships. It becomes so important and so fixated, apart from commitment, self-sacrificial love and friendship, right, that at the end of the day, it undermines all of those higher purposes. And when that happens, Boy, oh boy, what should you expect to see? Should you expect to see a five times increase in rapes and sexual violence? Well, there has been. Should you expect to see a breakdown of the family so that less than half the people that were being married in 1960 are being married today? Well, there has been. Uh, should you expect to find uh, that you're going to have a, a divorce rate uh, that is uh, uh, three times higher than it was in 1960? Well, there has been. Would you expect to find uh, that uh, also the the emotional um, uh, health and the relational health um, and the spiritual health of the people who follow those particular dispositions is much, much worse than those who actually follow Christ's prescription uh, for the way to live out a, a sexual um, a life. And the answer is uh, you should expect to see it because that's exactly what you will find in my book. The statistics, all of them from secular studies, are there writ large. In other words, what Jesus is trying to tell us is for our own good. Mm -hmm. He's trying to say keep commitment and sexuality together. Keep generativity and sexuality together. Keep family and sexuality together. Keep uh, you know self-sacrificial love and sexuality together. You start pulling those things apart, it's going to be the un undermining of all the higher principles. The lower one's going to become an end in itself, and you're going to be miserable. Your anxiety and and depression level and suicide level are going to go skyrocketing upwards. You're going to find yourself lacking in purpose and dignity and meaning and hope and, 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 and the absolute and the ultimate in your life, a complete unmooring of your life. And I, I, it's all proven. It's all there in secular studies. Every single one of those things does, in fact, happen. And our culture is literally the test tube example of the whole thing and is really unfortunate but that is, in fact, the case. And so uh, uh, I shouldn't say it's unfortunate. Uh, it's unfortunate for those who follow uh, some te teaching other than Jesus's. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, those who follow Jesus's teaching find themselves quite content and very happy, even in the midst of making sacrifices for others, even in the midst of making sacrifices for their family, even in the midst of actually mm -hmm. worshiping the Creator who gave them everything. All these things make us happy. For thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Amen. And of course, we're coming up on Christmas, so if you can give us a, maybe your Christmas blessing on the way out the door. And great thing about as you get older, you realize there's it's a lot more uh, fun giving than it is actually bothering to receive. So great lesson for yeah, absolutely. all of us. So go ahead, Father. Absolutely. Oh, sure. Bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord jesus christ and may his father may the, uh, who came into our lives and in jesus who made himself part of us
to teach us the way, to give us the church to point the way, who gave us the sacrament of himself and the other sacraments through his coming among us as a little infant, even in poverty. May that Lord who loved us so much to sacrifice for us so much, may he be a part of your life, enlightening you and leading you and filling you with his hope and his love throughout the Christmas season in this year. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. As always, thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Be well, and we shall see you soon. And we hope to see all of you soon here on Father Spitzer's Universe. Check out all of his books and DVDs available through our religious catalog, EWTNRC.com. Next week, a special show answering viewer questions, so check us out. And bookmark Mary, the Mother of God in Search of the Woman Who Changed History by Gregor Skorny and Janos Rosikon. Uh, two great authors. They've done wonderful books, great picture books. And be sure to stay with EWTN throughout the Christmas season as we bring you special masses and other events from around the globe celebrating the birth of our Savior. Check out the schedule at EWTN.com for events and times in your area. We are your Christmas place to be. God bless you. We shall see you next time. Thanks.